Hey, folks, welcome back to the Playful Podcast and the ongoing CEO series. Today, ton of fun and maybe a bit of a surprise. We have three CEOs in one and not three CEOs from three different organizations, but three CEOs from a single organization. As many of you know, there is a growing movement in shared leadership in our sector. And so Common Future, one of the great change organizations working on economic justice here uh, based in New York and working nationwide, has a three CEO model. So Jess Jupunky Feingold, Jennifer Jaguna, and Sandia Nakasi are all going to be with us. Two of them with me in the studio in New York City, and one calling in from Seattle, where she's based. It is a ton of fun. We eat ice cream virtually in person. We talk about change. We talk about shared leadership, and you are going to love it. So glad you're here. Nonprofit and philanthropic leaders devote their lives to the service of others, but sometimes they need a little help. Christine Mitchie has been deep in the work and the play of helping changemakers grow their impact for decades. So whether you're ladling soup at a local shelter or attending a UN peace conference, you need to find the balance between the heavy work and a light touch so you don't burn out. And Christine believes play is at the center of that. Welcome to the Playful Podcast, bringing fun to the serious work of changing the world. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Playful Podcast. It is season four, our CEO season, and today, we are getting three in one. We have three CEOs with us, the co-CEOs of Common Future. So I'm going to be so excited for you to get to meet Jessica, Jennifer, and Sandhya, who are with us two in the studio and one remote in from Seattle. We're here in New York and in Seattle. And I'm going to get started by having each of them say hi to you and tell us the most playful person you know. So introduce yourself and then tell us who's the most playful person you know. And Sandhya, I'm going to throw it to you first there in Seattle. Sounds good. Thank you. So happy to be here. My name is Sonia. I use she, her pronouns. I am co-CEOs with Jennifer and Jess at Common Future. And the most playful person I know would have to be, it's two people. It's my niece and nephew. They're seven and five, and they're just always creating new scenarios, new play things to do. They're just so much fun and so imaginative and seeing them play really uh, brings them up out for me. All right. There's gonna be some follow-up questions about that. They might be able to teach us something. All right. And Jennifer, I'll turn it over to you next. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Juguna. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And it's just been such a wonderful ride being one of the three co-CEOs with Jess and Sandia. And the most playful people that I know are my two sons. They're age two and three and a half. And also my husband. Um, I guess I would say we're a family of playful people. Nice. That's going to be fun to hear more about. And Jessica. And I'm Jess Jupunky Feingold. I go by she, her pronouns. And alongside Jennifer and Sandhya, just thrilled to be in this unique structure of co-CEO-ship. So we can talk more about that today. And certainly the most playful person I know is my mother. I think it's where I get it from. Growing up, we used to say to each other, play, play, play all day, day, day. And it's something we evoke when I need more play in my day. Certainly her silliness and just like, she's kind of a lyricist. She will make up songs for everything. And I've unfortunately, for everyone around me, I've inherited some of that. Oh my God, that's so fun. Well, I love talking about being playful as a kid, talking about both of you talking about kids, nieces and nephews and, and offspring being playful. 
I think I see in the three of you, and one of the things we hope to conjure and cultivate of the Playful Podcast is playfulness for grownups too, right? Like not setting that aside or picking it back up, especially for change makers. You know, the sort of the founding thesis of the Playful Podcast is change makers, people in the social sector are doing heavy work that isn't finished in any given day, and we got to come back tomorrow. And what can we do during and in between our change sessions, right, to keep our spirits up? So I would love to know if you were to make a case for co-CEOing like the three of you are doing. And the point was, let's convince people that's the most playful way you could lead an organization. What would you say about that? And if you would, when you're speaking up, just so our, our audio audience can know who it is, I'd love each of you to take a crack at that. Maybe Jennifer, start with you. Yeah, what I would say about that is because you have several people that are regularly working together, doing a lot of thought partnership, it's a prime opportunity to create more space and to cut out a lot of the noise that comes up in the day to day. And with that space that you have the opportunity to create, you get to invoke things like imagination, play. It's funny because we often use the language of experimentation. And when we're talking about that, we usually will say things like, let's try this on. And so it just really puts us in the habit of inviting a spirit of play, getting us out of the day to day and able to just get our creative juices flowing, get those wheels turning. And so I think it's been a, a particular aspect of the co-CEO structure that I've really enjoyed and that I don't know how it might work with a single CEO just because the dynamic is different, but in the structure, it gives us a real opportunity to open up the space for that. I love it. Now it's seeming so obvious after just that first answer of the three. So Sandhya, so what's playful yeah, about co-CEO roles and structure? Yeah. The only thing that I would add to what Jennifer shared is there's a dynamic when there's three of us where we each bring our own personalities and our own perspective and like whatever we've been dealing with into the room. And we are able to diffuse that together, whether it's something that needs to be diffused or, or, or diffuse that in a way that's like moves us into that imaginative space. So sometimes bringing in moments of, of levity to help us like shake off a difficult conversation or even just telling a story to kind of prep us for or move us into a place of a more open and expansive thinking. So from my vantage point, it really offers an ability to, to kind of move through those transition points together and get ready for the spaces that we want to create together. Man, this sounds like a commercial for it. I'm already sold. Jessica, what would you add? Yeah, I am hearing Sandhya on it's really about moving us intentionally into spaces of imagination. And if I was to think about our co-leadership structure through the lens of play, I think about us as sort of writers in the writer's room of a comedy oh. show. <laughs> because one thing that I learned very quickly in coming into this structure is sort of like there's a tendency as leaders to fall in love with our own ideas. And I bring them into a writing room, a proverbial writing room, where y'all two are smarter than myself. And so the ideas, they go deeper, they get improved, you riff with one another. And what comes out of that process is a heck of a lot stronger than if I or we had done it alone. Okay, now I'm really, I'm, I'm aha moment here. I'm just thinking, why would anybody think that they could come up with this on their own? Like if I'm thinking, okay, Christine, be more playful. Well, I don't want to, like, like what kind of conversation do I have with myself about playfulness? I'm even thinking the difference between two and three. If you're going to go co-CEO, I say go for it. It seems like if there was just two of you, 
we may be more familiar with sort of a binary, like this idea in life that things are binary and that three automatically breaks up. So trinary, is that a word? (laughs) That's what you guys are experimenting with. So have you met other triple CEO combos? Typically, no. I would say when you look at sort of the co-CEO playbook, looking at Fortune 500s like Salesforce and Netflix have had co-CEOs, but it often falls into this binary trap that you're naming, Christine. And I think what's so interesting about three, when someone's really coming to us ready to debate or skeptical about the co-CEO structure, I say, we have a natural tiebreaker. But that's what I say to others. That's actually not how it works here. It really is more about the building of ideas and the fact that you can really evolve out of a binary way of thinking. I think we push each other to do that every day. It occurs to me, too, that two, okay, not to overstate, but like two people could be in a bad mood on the same day, but three is less likely, right? There's going to be somebody probably of the three of you who, for whatever reason, has a little more energy, got a little better night's sleep, has maybe a, just is kind of coming at the day a little differently than maybe just counting on two people to be in the same headspace. Sandia, you're nodding. Yeah, I feel like this is what you're sharing is very much like how I feel. Like sometimes I will come into a space and definitely all three of us are not in the same mood or in the same headspace. I might come into a meeting with the the two of them and might be coming out of a more challenging conversation that I had and just kind of feeling low. And then Jennifer is like telling this amazing story about this weekend plans that she had and then that like completely changes the dynamic. And so I think that's even to what I was talking about before about like having each of us kind of have different personalities and have different ways that we deal with stress and have different ways that we deal with challenging situations. And it has allowed me to try that on for size as well. So I'm continually learning about how Jess moves through stressful situations or moves through really exciting situations and learning and trying that on myself um, and learning as a leader how I can show up in different spaces with different ways of being as well. Do either of the other ones share something about sort of this idea about who's in what mood? Yeah, it's funny because I come into this with a feeling of now I don't know any other way to be. You know, when I think about co-CEO models that are just two people, I'm like, how does that work? (laughs) That seems weird. And we're the ones that (laughs) often get the question, not just about co-leadership, but oh, oh, not only co-leadership, there's three of you. But in addition to that, I I think what Sandia said is, is so spot on, you know, and sometimes it's not even word, it's a facial expression. And, you know, we know each other's facial expressions now. And it's like, that'll, you know, just cut the ice so quickly, you know, and lighten up the mood if that was a, a space we weren't starting from necessarily. And so I've really appreciated appreciated having that, you know, just especially when you think about how challenging the external world is, it underscores the need for that levity, you know, that I I do get, you know, with Jess and Sandia. So yeah, it, it's really been a great opportunity. Let me ask you, and, and okay, here's a moment, who gets to answer this one? I want to not assume, because I might have, that everyone knows what Common Future is. So let's do a little primer on the organization and how do you want to divide up Maybe each say something about common future. Jess? I will just say, as you look around the room, these are the moments as co-CEOs where we're so used to speaking with one voice. But we also, with our team, did an activity yesterday in celebration of the year where we look to each tell part of a story together. So we've got some really recent practice on this. I'll kick us off, but like, let's really volley it around. So Common Future is a place that not only imagines that a more equitable economy is possible, we actually make it possible. We do that deliberately each and every day. We occupy this space as an intermediary. 
So we can sort of sit at the table getting to know capital allocators, power brokers, policymakers, as well as those folks in community who are building community wealth. And in fact, always know because the folks closest to this problems have and drive the solutions. When we look at economic and wealth inequality in this country, there is a widening gap, but we are able to chip away at it through the investment work that we do through finding and evincing that solutions are actually already here and possible. Maybe additional ones need to be seeded. We provide sort of like that context for what is possible and then use that to influence out to folks structurally so that the system that holds people back from equitable access becomes changed. And I'll pass it, let me volley it over to Jennifer to continue the comma future story. Yeah. So it's funny because I always love when Jess starts us out and I always love to hear how she tells a story. She's a longer tenured of the three of us. And so she really just knows personally the through line of the organization. But what I would add to what Jess has said is not only are we focused on doing those things externally, we really seek to bring those things internally and live out our values. We see that, you know, the way we operate inside the organization is connected to and reflected in the external work that we do. And so when we talk about, you know, racial and economic equity, we're thinking about how does that apply to our staff? What kinds of policies and practices and ways of being are, are we implementing within the organization? And so we take that approach to the design as well. That has precisely been a space to play and to experiment and try things on as we seek to, you know, be the future of work, reimagine what work looks looks like and what the possibilities are so that folks can have more well-being, rest, and play in their life and in their work. Yeah, part three. I would add that this past year we went through a exercise with the social change ecosystem map and kind of understanding our role within the broader ecosystem. And we picked out three roles as an organization. One was visionaries, the other one was experimenters, and the third one was guides. Visionaries really speaks to the work that Jess led us off with in terms of imagining what is possible, lifting up the solutions that are happening already in our communities, and really carrying that vision out to the broader ecosystem and the broader society. As a guide, we really are kind of being that intermediary taking, supporting the, the solutions happening on the ground, also translating that to power brokers and capital allocators, as Jess mentioned, and then experimenters really at the heart of everything that we do. As Jennifer shared, we're experimenting within our organization, we're experimenting outside of our organization. We know that there's not going to be just one solution that brings us to an equitable economy. And it really is whole bunch of solutions and a whole bunch of practices that need to evolve and change for us to get to a place where we can build an equitable economy. And really that that place of experimentation is where where we sit. I love it. I'm hoping always that the audience for the Playful Podcast is growing and starting to include people for whom a lot of these terms are not familiar, right? So I think a lot of change folks will know what we're talking about. I'm just going to pause for a second on intermediary. I've actually, in my career, worked for a lot of intermediaries and often in a fundraising role. And sometimes the funders or the donors are like, well, can I just kind of leap over you and give money to those guys that are the ones you're helping. Can I just, you know, skip that? And there's a growing, I think, practice importantly around helping those that are doing the work, right? Intermediaries, sometimes the money does pause there, bolsters that that role, 
so that the sector and all the players in the sector can do their work better and have more support. Tell me how you answer that question about being an intermediary. And I don't know, anything playful about that? <laughs> well, Vu Lee wrote an article probably just about two or three weeks ago on the incredible role of intermediaries in our sector, which tend to be really overlooked. So if you know his blog at Nonprofit AF, it is quite playful. I think there's a lot of both cat memes getting us into the content. And I really, I buy into a lot of the arguments that he shared there in terms of we're living in really trying and emergent times. And it's often intermediaries that hold relationships and can really flex those muscles in times of need. It really is about situating ourselves in a space where Yes, Common Future can make grants, but we're not philanthropy. We don't have an endowment. We build our power intrinsically to use it in ways that are very wise. And I think one of those responsibilities is really, as an intermediary, being able to step in, being able to speak up, um, that ability to move between where, frankly, less resource organizations are not structured to. That's precisely what we're structured for. Yeah, definitely a fan of Boule for sure. And I think this is such an important question because one of the things that's at the heart of it is this idea that we are trying to foster systems change, right? Like there's no single solution. There's no single issue. It's really a web of all of these things mixed together. And when we talk about systems change, it's really designed toward understanding root causes and also the mix of short, medium, and long-term solutions. And so when we think about that, we have to recognize that that necessarily means there are a variety of players and stakeholders within an ecosystem. And so the role of the intermediary is really the connective tissue, you know, that connective tissue to folks who are doing direct service work, which is often very exhausting, saving lives, literally saving lives on the front lines and are not often set up or equipped to do some of the broader work that's needed around the issues that they're working on, you know, or have stretched capacity to do it. And so when you think about an intermediary coming in to support those efforts, to provide additional capacity, and to translate back those lessons to funders that don't always have an ear towards the folks that are, you know, doing the work and closest to the solutions in addition to the problems, I can't underscore enough the role of an intermediary in the ecosystem at large. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, this most maybe the simplest um, idea that people can conceive of, especially new to the space would be, for example, hunger, right? So there's like literally a need for soup in the bowl, right? At the soup kitchen, the proverbial idea, which is more than a proverb, right? I mean, that's actual. Okay. And then there's like, why are there hungry people? And what's all, what are the, all the upstream solutions and problems that need to be addressed? And so if there's a food system, in fact, the San Diego Food System Alliance was, um, we had a guest from there and they're working on food justice and food systems issues in Southern California. And so they're talking about soil health and seed banking and fisheries. So any one of those organizations is in on that. And then the alliance every day is coming in supporting the whole and trying to weave and knit it all together for a greater understanding and greater support. And the issues are big. So <laughs> the issues don't, don't simplify themselves to fit into our model. So we have to have solutions that are layered and complex as well. All right, now we're gonna get the ice cream out because it's potentially melting and that's when avoid that if possible. So folks, Taharka Brothers is today's sponsor as well, as they are for the whole season. We've done a little deciding here in advance, and we're going to pass the cooler around. Sandia doesn't have to. Um, she actually has all the choices, and she's made hers. Tell us, Sandia, what you chose from the Taharka Brothers inventory. 
Yeah, I chose, what is it, Honey Graham, which is Graham ice cream with a Graham cracker swirl. Oh, yes. And Here, here's a nap. Uh, pretty early in the morning for me. Morning breakfast. Ice cream for breakfast. Right? <laughs> Excellent. And folks, so Taharka Brothers, based in Baltimore, and shipping nationwide. So, and they ship six at a time. It's just just de rigueur. So check them out online and order away. I'm going to have, what'd you choose, Jess? I went with salted caramel with chocolate-covered honeycomb toffee. Say it again. No one has ever invented a flavor that's more for me. (laughs) Salted caramel is included, as well as chocolate-covered honeycomb toffee. Oh, man. And don't hesitate to make noise into the microphone. I mean, my podcast has lots of eating sounds in it, and we don't have to worry about that. Okay. And I chose cookies and coffee. All right. You guys, it's so good. Folks there in the audience, I told my guests here that my mom <laughs> said to me the other day, have you checked your cholesterol since you started the podcast? I haven't. So maybe after, well, maybe I'll wait a week or so <laughs> until this gets out of my system. All right. So I'd love to hear while we're having ice cream about what's the scoop on how you came to care and a little bit of your own personal sort of impact origin story. Let's see. Sandy, I'm going to go to you first. I was thinking about this question a lot, actually. So I think since I was born, I've always been a kind of deeply feeling individual. I've had this feeling of just a sense of fairness and justice and equity. You know, when I was born, there was a lot of actually unrest in the area that my parents grew up in, in Kashmir and India. And they were doing a lot of activism as individuals here in the United States. And that kind of really... I think it just like incepted itself in my brain and really has shaped who I am going forward and and shaped that sense of you have to speak up when you see something is not going the way that you think is going to work for everyone. And so really, I think that was like a seminal like moment for me that even I didn't understand as an individual, but then something that kind of clicked for me as I was thinking about this last night was really the first time I had to debate something um, was in ninth grade English class. And we were all put on different teams. And the issue that I was given was same-sex marriage. And at that time in ninth grade, same-sex marriage was not uh, legalized federally. And it wasn't actually even legalized in the state of Maryland, which is where I was living at the time. And so part of the preparing for this debate was like, you have to do a lot of research and a lot of prep and prepare your arguments and and really understand deeply the issue and the history. And that really doing that exercise gave me the tools to start when I had this niggling feeling of something's not right here. Like I knew then how to really prepare myself to start thinking about what are the counter arguments? How do I understand this issue more? What are the, where can I derive solutions from? What are the solutions that have been tried in the past? And really kind of turning to history as a place of, of starting to understand and deepen my understanding of injustices that we see in the world today. And how did it go the day of the big presentation? You know, I was trying to remember. I, I think we just got graded on it. Like, I don't think, like, we, you know, with anybody <laughs> did won you or win? lost or anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would lead. like to I can't think imagine I won. She did. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that I can't recall. I'll have to call up my ninth grade English teacher and, and ask her. Or if any of your classmates from ninth grade are listening, feel free to, you know, put in the show notes your recollection. <laughs> 
exactly. Thank you for that. That is wonderful. And certainly, you know, building the ability to stay in the conversation with those who have a different opinion is one of the most important and challenging things and so important in our times. So I love that story. Jennifer, how about you? Yes, yes. So I'm originally from Oakland, California, and it's a city known for being at the forefront of political struggle with a number of grassroots organizations, you know, just really working on the forefront of justice. And I grew up with a mother who really taught me about that, you know, from taking me to the Oakland Coliseum to see Nelson Mandela when he was freed from prison as a six-year-old girl, teaching me about the Black Panthers and, you know, the free breakfast program, all the community efforts that they started. So this sense of justice was just always instilled in me from an early age. I also went to a Catholic school um, in my community, and we had a principal and teachers who wanted to make sure we knew more than just about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So we were learning about, at the time, apartheid in South Africa. We were learning deep, deep understanding of Black history and other political history. And so couple that with growing up in a working class community. You know, I'm someone who's first generation college graduate. I took those examples and wanted to create change in communities that were similar to mine. And so I thought that the way that I would do that would be through the law. And so, you know, I, I thought about folks like Thurgood Marshall, Charles Hamilton Houston, Constance Baker, Motley. And I went to college and then to law school. And then I got to law school and I I realized, oh, I do not want to be in the courtroom (laughs) like that. But how else can I be able to continue making a mark um, knowing what I know about the world and, and society we live in? And so I pursued a number of public interest, nonprofit opportunities in a variety of areas, health justice, education access, social services, and over time learned about the challenges that many nonprofits face operationally. And so when the opportunity for a common future was available, I was able to really combine every one of my interests in justice, but also fostering sound organizations. And then in addition to that, which I didn't know at the time, I've I've now had this tremendous opportunity to step in as a co-CEO. So that's the short version of of how I got here. But that that is really where it all began. And I've just continued to hold that, you know, those experiences as a child deep in my heart, no matter where I've been, what rooms I've been in, what parts of the country I've been in or globally. And so that's my journey. It sure is a calling. I would say, I didn't haven't done the math, but I would say, you know, probably 80% of the folks that have been on the podcast have a, a story from their childhood that they conjure up. A couple folks had something in the more recent, the more recent past, but, and everybody, regardless of when it was sparked, it's a calling, right? For sure. And Jess, what's your impact origin story? Yeah, I'm going to dig even deeper into the past and tell a story I usually do not tell about my grandparents. So my grandmother was a nurse, my grandfather was an airplane mechanic, and these are the kinds of jobs that you took up during the Second World War, and they became vocations because you were an adolescent when the war began, and that's how you got trained up into your professions. And they both grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, Allentown and Mahanoy City, so in coal country. Made their home, had my mother and their two other children living in Long Beach, Long Island, so just south of JFK Airport, where my grandfather was working. And when they went to build the International Airport in Denver, he got this tremendous opportunity to move his whole family out to Denver, to the Plains, 
where there's great airplane noise and they could build their home next to the airport. And so I know my grandparents' upbringing was quite simple. And I remember being a kid visiting their house and how humble things were. But thinking about social justice work that I've been doing, one of the things we often say is that there is a birth lottery. You can't plan for the zip code that you'll be born into, but we know it's one of the key social determinants of your life outcome. And my grandparents, when I was five years old, they won the actual lottery, which is quite different than the birth lottery. And what I learned, I think, through that experience, because for me, there's a before and there's an after. There is a moment where my family was really struggling to make ends meet. My father was building his business. My grandparents were looking to retire and couldn't. My grandmother had taken over a new role as a real estate agent to try to figure out how to provide, how to make this work. And, you know, they were bought into this American dream. So they kept buying those lottery tickets, which you might argue are an addiction and prey off both the concept of the American dream and what's possible, but also the impossibility that it's ever going to work out from a probability standpoint. And it played on them and they played the lottery. And as my grandmother always says, you have to be in it to win it. And it remarkably changed the status of my family. It sent my cousins and I all to college. And for me, there's a before and an after, but it really took, I think, the truth of this myth of the American meritocracy like out of the game for me. It showed me that Access to capital is not only unequal, it's unfair. And to me, that's unjust. So there's just I, what I know about this country and inequality is it's completely arbitrary. At least my own family story helps me to see that. And so throughout my life, as I've seen inequality in places I've lived and worked and traveled to, where friends and people that I love have lived and places that I care about, I've just done my best to really, I think, shoot that myth straight through, show the falsehoods, and also reimagine a completely different way of living. I love that lesson from the lottery winning. Carmela Castellano, do you know no, her? So I don't her know. family, the Castellano Family Foundation, her parents won the lottery in uh, Central California, roughly in the 80s, I believe. She's going to be on the podcast on an upcoming episode, and she has recently retired. They sunsetted their foundation. But interesting, I didn't know that story. So we will have that in the season two, Families Wear Lottery and the empathetic worldview lesson that you took from it is really appreciated. And I love how I'm, I'm having the aha of what it did for you is reinforce the kind of the insanity of our system and our model and the randomness and the, which just reinforces what's inequitable. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. All right. Jennifer's put a lid on her ice cream. I'm always the one. Sandia, how's how deep are you in the carton? I'm about like a fourth. Excellent. Through. Thank you. You and I are, are tracking right along. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Let me ask you, the play personalities was something that we we talk about on the podcast a lot. I shared it with you all in advance. And I had an, a thought that both it'd be fun for you to hear what you think is sort of your primary one. But I also wonder if you saw each other as you read through the list and maybe putting you a little a little on the spot to think, you know, Sandia, what do you think is Jess's primary play personality as it shows up in the workplace? I think Jess was probably the easiest one for me to identify even before my own self, which is maybe maybe a little concerning, but I feel like Jess was definitely the artist creator personality type. I also thought there was a secondary one in there that that fit Jess. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's the one who like goes on walks. Yeah, so <laughs> like exercise. It's more. like the word 
kinesiology or kinesthetic, it's kinesthete. It is a little hard to say kinesthete, but it's like Mm -hmm. rough and tumble kind of, you know, active physical play. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's like she's a rough and tumble, but I know that Jess likes to go for walks, (laughs) um, especially with her dog. So I think there's like that piece of, of play as well. All right. So Jen, what do you, Jennifer, what do you think about Sandia? What came to mind? I actually, so there were two. One was the kinesthete because I think about the walks that she takes. I remember the first time she was talking about it. It sounded so casual. And then I, it was like, what do you mean 12 miles? Like, what, <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's not a walk that I take. What is, what is that? So that one comes up. And then there's the other one. I'm blanking on the precise name, but it, it's like the, the learner the curious explorer um, maybe yeah the explorer that one for sure sandia is just always in a place of curiosity and open to learning and just really known for sharing insightful articles and bits of information and so something that i really appreciate so those are two that come to mind all right and so now i think for jess to say about jennifer is is the next combination well i think what's clear is even though we can't pronounce kinesthete I think that's it. Yeah, I think all three of us must be. I think about the mornings we find each other in the hotel gym. (laughs) And no matter what combination the team we're with, it's us and only us. So we find each other there. That's a morning routine. And when I think about Jennifer, I also think about just this storytelling aspect, Mm -hmm. the amounts of yourself and your vulnerability that you share. You give a gift to people not only that tells like a broad story, but a personal story. And I think that is something very rare and you find a lot of calm in it. Do you think having been exposed to the play personalities now, you can or maybe already have thought about its utility in your leadership with each other, but also with your team? It has been suggested to me that, for example, like a Myers-Briggs, that as a like those different kinds of personality tests, that play personalities could also be a conduit to working with your teams. Any thoughts around that? I mean, it could be used, you could you could give the test, so to speak, to everybody and see what kind of combinations. And the cases, in most cases, more than one apply, but maybe there's the one that kind of feels like you lead with that. So if you have a joker in the room, right, there's certain things are going to happen. And maybe there's, that's the person you can put in charge of the icebreaker, for example, and things like that. So no, no, no quiz here to be stumped by, but like, I'm interested in how that might be useful as we keep talking about it. I haven't, the construct and the, and the book when Dr. Brown put those forward is over a decade old, but it's it's getting a little bit more attention now, which I think is good, good news. Okay. So amongst you all, there's a yoga teacher. There's a ceramicist, also a little tricky to pronounce. There's a um, photographer. There's a Soka aficionado. So tell us what you do for fun. And do you think there's anything you don't know each- about each other that you do as a pastime hobby or guilty pleasure. Jennifer? Yeah. So I really love, love, love music, dance, uh, theater. There's just something about being in the body and in the moment that I think comes through all of those elements. So for me, that looks like going to see Broadway shows, going to see dance shows, going to see live music, you know, the most recent ones, of course, Renaissance, Beyonce, and also the Pedro Martinez group, Afro-Cuban live music. I love all kinds of music, but soca, Afrobeats. I've been to Carnival in Trinidad. 
I've danced in the New York City Halloween parade, the thriller dance. So it, it really is a thing for me. And I love those elements when they involve costumes, which feel very much like an element of play. And they also just feel like the one of the highest forms of freedom where you're just in whatever body you are in, in the moment, experiencing that and connecting with other people, experiencing the same thing at the same time. So for me, those are my faves for sure. Yeah, I am the photographer. I used to be much more avid, a much more avid photographer. And now it's more on trips and things where I'll like bring the camera out to take photos. For me, it's really, it really is just more of an exercise of like pausing and slowing down and, and noticing the things around me and trying to capture moments that I'm seeing and maybe not somebody else and really being able to kind of just slow down and really like take in my surroundings. And I really, for me, in terms of how that evolves as play over time is, is really, I, I love to take the top photographs, but I also, I really love looking back and going through albums. And so getting those photos printed and putting them in an album and, and then having a moment to like, go back and like laugh at the the silly photos that we took of each other and um, remember those moments that we were in and and try to be like why did we why did we take this photo and i i i was at home recently in my parents house and i found all of these old photographs from when i was in middle school and high school and they're just like someone gave me a camera and i just like took photos of every single moment of every single day there was like thousands of photos there and I was looking through them with my friends and we were just like why are we wearing these clothes to make us look like 40 year old women when we're 14 or like what you know like just kind of remembering how silly it was to be a kid and and just trying to figure out who you are and then also like being able to be silly in the moment with each other as well as we're as we're going through those photos so photography is just like a medium for me that helps me pause and reflect and remember moments that are really fun and exciting. Yeah, and I love you sort of the reminder about the tactile nature of old school photography and the, the the paper and the printing and the albums and all of that different than just, you know, scrolling through on your phone, which is its own can have its own, you know, playfulness. Thanks that. And Jess, are you the ceramicist am I remembering? Yes. Which is also a little tricky to say, ceramicist. It's tricky to say. It's trickier to do. (laughs) (laughs) We have a new colleague, Maureen Silva, who started with us just this week. And in introducing herself yesterday to the whole team, just talked about her father and his experience as a ceramicist and what it had taught her. And I think that message keeps coming back to me and resonating. It's the fact that you can build something and endeavor and endeavor, and it collapses in microseconds. It's the fact that you can perfect and perfect and perfecting will hit a fault because you will thin out those walls until they can no longer hold. Mm. Like there's just a million and a half analogies when you're working with clay and it's mud. So it's humbling to create something out of that is like seriously a work of art. I mean, that's the best way of putting it. There was a, um, in one of Brene Brown's either talks or books, she talks about doing something for no reason and making sure you have something that falls into that category. The no reason can be, or should be perhaps, just for no reason is for fun, right? Just, just. but when I first read that a few years ago, I was like, oh, I don't think I have anything. And it was the beginning of the pandemic. And so like a lot of people, I added things in during that time because there was sort of a different sense of time. And I added bird watching, which really honestly became more bird listening. And I tried to get better at um, just 
identifying the birds outside my window in the morning and there's that bird app and so you can listen and then and then I started just like being able to do it on my own and then looking up what they looked like so that was you know I wasn't gonna ever compete in this I was just wanted to, to have the experience and then I started writing a poem a day just to add that in and for myself you know every once in a while I think you know maybe one day my great-great-grandchildren will unearth this notebook and see what great-great-grandma wrote but other than that I'm not expecting anyone is ever gonna read any of them but I'm enjoying the process of putting the words together in a different way for no reason so all right so for a final wrap-up any call to action that you might have for us sort of on behalf of common future and creating the new economy, the new society, the new world, and not waiting, right? Kind of what are we doing right now? What are we doing this afternoon? What can we do tomorrow? Any one of you that wants to answer. Should I call on somebody? Jennifer looks ready. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. And I was looking at both Jess and, and Sandia. I think in terms of a call to action is just this sense that everyone has a role to play, right? If I go back to that earlier question and answer about this broader ecosystem, there's something about us all being together on this earth and at the same time. And it, it means we all have an individual power regardless of where we're situated and also a collective power. And really tapping into that and tapping into that space of play and hope regardless of where we're situated to really create and shape the world that we want. There is no reason that we can't. And there's so many figures from our past who had no reason to believe that they could, and yet they did. And so that is our call here too. We, you know, we heard from Jess in, in the opening about who Common Future is, you know, the environment that we're in. You know, we see the environment that we're in every time we go outside, every time we turn on the news, every time we open up <laughs> a browser and the internet. And so this is the time right now. And all of us have a role and a duty to, to take up that call. I love it. I, what can I do, right? How many people over the millennia have asked that? And I often think about in our change sector, um, you know, we are the people who, I think I can say this, like we are the people who see the injustice and think, what can I do? And that not everyone is sparked that way. And that's fine. But well, for whatever reason, we were born with that or it was cultivated and nurtured in us. And we're looking for more, right? We're, we're, always, <laughs> we're always hiring, right? There's always, there's always room for more people who maybe get the spark and if they don't know what to do. There's a lot of people doing the work that they can plug into. And it can be as simple as neighbor to neighbor, block and block, and of course, all the way up to, you know, presenting before the UN General Assembly, you know, and, and, and et cetera. And all of it is change making and can be playful. And that's, you know, our belief is that, you know, this being a little silly, right, to sustain the work because we're going to plug back in and pull up the boots and do it again tomorrow. So thank you so much, the three of you, for being here. Thank you for joining me in some ice cream today. Thank you to Taharka Brothers for sponsoring us and to Lounge Studios here in New York City for hosting us here today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So folks, that conversation with Jess, Jennifer, and Sandia was just so inspiring. And I got to tell you, I started out honestly going, I don't know, three CEOs, how does that work? And I am now 
in love with this model. I thought we heard from them some really wonderful examples of why and how having this model works and, and how they, they learn and gain from each other and the organization and therefore the society, the community and the people they help all gain as well. It was fun to have them get to know each other a little bit better eating ice cream together and hearing them describe each other's play personalities as well. So really glad you joined us for this episode with the three CEOs from Common Future and looking forward to seeing you next time. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to the Playful Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you know of a leader or organization that's doing good in the world and you'd love to help us help them amplify their message, I would love to have them on the show. Go to the show notes and click there or go to impactfulinc.com slash contact. And that's impactful with two L's, inc.com slash contact. And let us know who you're thinking about. Can't wait to see you next time.